0: TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome
1: to The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. You read a lot of court opinions during law school, and as nerdy as it sounds, some of them have a lasting impact. The opinion that still influences me every day of my life is Gideon v. Wainwright. That's the unanimous 1963 Supreme Court opinion that granted the right to an attorney to anyone facing incarceration for committing a crime. No matter their ability to pay. It was a landmark decision and it paved the way for public defenders, juvenile defenders, and I would argue even Just City itself. What makes this case even more special is that the lawyer who convinced nine Supreme Court justices to create this new right to counsel was from Memphis. Abe Fortas went on to become a Supreme Court justice himself. And his is a fascinating story of an unlikely rise from humble beginnings to an unlikely fall from one of the most powerful positions in the country. On this episode of The Permanent Record, we're going to explore this fascinating Memphis story. And here to help guide us is Professor Timothy Hubner. Professor Hubner recently wrote a journal article called Memphis and the Making of Justice Fortas. He's a professor of history at mine and Abe Fortas' alma mater, Rhodes College, here in Memphis. Professor Hubner, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you joined the faculty at Rhodes, I think, when I was there, between 93 and 97. Am I right?
0: That's absolutely right. Yes, I started at Rhodes College in the fall of 1995, yeah. so a long time ago. I'm finishing <laughs> up my 23rd year there. Man,
1: that makes me feel really, really old. Um, well, when I was there, I don't recall ever hearing the name Abe Fortas, um, Tell me how you came to understand or know about Abe Fortas and his connection to Memphis and to Rhodes uh, and what, what you did when you found out.
0: Well, and I'm not really surprised that you had never heard the name Abe Fortas and that you didn't know that he was from Rhodes or from Memphis. Rhodes and Memphis haven't talked about Abe Fortas much lately, and I came to Fortas really as a scholar of the history of the Supreme Court and the Constitution. And found out that soon after I moved here, kind of uh, realized that Fortas was from Memphis. And uh, later I learned that he graduated from Southwestern. And so this was a which project. Which is now Rhodes. Right, which is now Rhodes and was uh, named Rhodes starting in 1984. So this was a project that I had been interested in for a long time. Most of my own work has focused on the 19th century. So this was really taking me out of the time period that I focused right. on. But it was always a story that I wanted to look into. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you normally teach or study or write about? Uh, Right. So I teach all of our courses at Rhodes on the history of the American South and the Civil War era in the history of the Constitution and the Supreme Court. And especially in the last 10 years or so, I've been the associate editor of the Journal of Supreme Court History. So I've been especially interested in the history of the – Court and so when I had a sabbatical opportunity last year, I finally decided it was time to dive into the records and see what I could learn about. Fortis.
1: Yeah, well, and before we we talk more about the results of that research, which is the article that that I want to I want to talk most about. Tell us about, um, you know, the challenges you you had researching this this man who, you know, was in his day a pretty powerful person in American um, in politics and government. Um, what did you uh, what did you find when you started digging into uh, his, his roots here in Memphis?
0: Right. So Fortas is obviously a very significant figure in the history of the court and the Constitution uh, and the law. And there are two really good biographies of him. Uh, one, especially by Laura Coleman, is excellent. Um, but as excellent as it is, it doesn't tell the Memphis story there are only six pages in Common's uh, biography that focus on his early life in Memphis. And then he's off to Yale Law School, yeah. and then he's in the New Deal, and then he's friend of Johnson's, and then he's on the court. So Those things are easy to research. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so scholars who've looked at Fortas have focused on all of that. I was interested, obviously, in the local story. Yeah. And that's harder to get at. And that meant a lot of time spent at the Memphis Shelby County Room at the Memphis Public Library as well as time at the Temple Israel Archives, uh, the University of Memphis uh, Special Collections at uh, their library, yeah. and then finally at the archives at uh, Rhodes College, where I found a lot more than I thought uh, you know, that I would back when I started on the project. Right.
1: Right. Well, so let's let's then talk about this story, which I find fascinating, mostly because I'm a nerd and I'm a lawyer and um, (laughs) specifically I was a public defender. And and we'll talk about why that's important in a minute. But uh, uh, set the stage for us, the language that you use in the article and the the stories and the anecdotes that you, you use to paint picture of Memphis in the early 20th century Uh, is really great. So what was it like at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century in Memphis, and what brought Fortas' family here? And just just give us the the quick quick background for how he arrived
0: here in Memphis. Sure. So Memphis in the early 20th century is still kind of a rough, rollicking river town. It had been founded in 1819. It had uh, survived the Civil War and Yellow Fever. Um, It was a town in the late 19th century that was trying to recover from yellow fever. And it was able to do that um, to the point that by about 1900, it was a city with a population of about 100,000 people. And it was the second largest city in the states of the old Confederacy. So it was a city that had uh, survived all of those challenges of the late 19th century. Um, It was also drawing a lot of... um, um, new faces, uh, migrants from the surrounding area, but also immigrants from foreign countries. And so in 1905, Fortas's parents move here from England. Yeah. His father had been born in Russia, uh, we think. His mother, we think, was born in uh, Lithuania, and their names were Wolf and Ray,
1: yeah which we learned uh, later though when, when in birth registries maybe their names are different or they use they use more formal
0: names right so the uh interesting thing about fortis's parents is it's hard to get access to information so uh you can look at the census which i did um so these two people who are uh first listed as wolf and ray later on show up as william and rachel right um they move here uh, because Wolf's brother Joseph has already uh, migrated here um, and he started a furniture business. And he's done pretty well. In by, the Pinch District, as yes, I recall, near the, right. Near the pyramid. Uh, right. Uh, and so this is uh, in 1905 when Wolf and Ray move here. There are already some fortices here and they're in business. Uh, Wolf, uh, we think, uh, goes to work for his brother in the furniture business. He's a cabinet maker and a woodworker. For some reason, he parts ways with his brother. Some years later, we don't know exactly what happened. And he goes out on his own and ends up operating out of a small storefront on South Main. Um, but he does a lot of different things. He's never really successful. First, it's a jewelry store and then it's a pawn shop and, (laughs) And uh, then it's uh, a clothing store, then it goes back to being a pawn shop and a jewelry store. And so um, he's basically operating out of this small storefront trying to make a living yeah. in yeah. early. 20th century Memphis.
1: And, and am I correct in saying that the, the Jewish population in Memphis was not a small population, right? And and also, when you answer that, tell us some of the other ethnic groups that were represented in Memphis, because as I recall from, from reading, it was a pretty good cross-section of, of, of and, and a diverse group of people here in the turn of the 20th century.
0: Yes, absolutely. And in, in some ways, Memphis had always had a significant immigrant population, even if you go back into the years uh, before the Civil War, there were a significant number of Irish immigrants and German immigrants, but by the late 19th century it's Italians and Russians, Um, and uh, that's basically part of the wave of immigrants uh, that the Fortas family were part of. Um, So they come here once again in 1905, and then five years later, Abe is born in 1910.
1: Yeah, so what, what was Jewish life like? What, was the, what were the synagogues? And, and
0: right, so there were about, uh, by 1912, the best figures that we have is that there were about 6,000 Jews in Memphis. So it's a fairly significant population sure, yeah. at the time. Um, um, and uh, if you sort of think about the Jewish population in the Fortas family and sort of where they fit... The Fortises were part of the Orthodox segment of the Jewish population, but by all accounts, they were not very religious. So they were a part of the Baron Hirsch uh, synagogue, but they were, I think, uh, more prominent in the more uh, philanthropic and sort of um, cultural um, organization associated with Orthodox Jews in Memphis at Mm -hmm. the time, which was known as the Arbeiter Ring. Right and it was there that uh uh young Abe fortas first met um or first had an opportunity to sort of um come in contact with one of his Memphis uh mentors, and that was a fellow by the name of hardwick paris right
1: paris and then that also that uh that strong Jewish community and that um uh you know social and cultural center of jewish life that that they were so close to is what led him to music right.
0: Yes, absolutely. So Fortas' father actually played the violin and had a love uh, for music, and so he introduced him to the violin. Uh, By all accounts, he probably also went to concerts um, as a young boy. Uh, We also know that that he was able to take lessons at St. Patrick's uh, Church, which was right around the corner from where he lived. So... The Fortis family at this point is sort of living um, a few blocks south of uh, Beale Street uh, yeah. in that area, and of course St. Patrick's Church uh, still stands,
1: still there, right next to the FedEx Forum, right for for folks that live in Memphis. And so he uh, was a bit of a prodigy. Is that is that a too strong of a word?
0: No, I think that's accurate. He yeah. was very skilled at playing the violin. He picked it up very very quickly. So much so that he was able not only to learn. But to start to teach others Mm -hmm. and to make some money teaching others, which made it possible for him to learn from those who were even better. Um, So he very quickly moves on from taking uh, violin lessons at uh, St. Patrick's to studying with one of the um, Cortese brothers, Joseph Cortese, who had been trained in Chicago and was the leader of a musical um, sort of uh, group in Memphis at the time, and
1: earned the nickname. Give us the nickname,
0: Fiddlin' Abe. Fiddlin'
1: Abe, and, and yes. from some of the uh, the descriptions that you include in in the article, um, you know this was not sleepy violin music this was toe-tapping good time party music right
0: yeah these are dance tunes yeah. jazz tunes and um, you know once again um keep in mind this would be the early 1920s mm-hmm. so once again he's born in 1910 so when he's playing violin and he's learning how to earn money by playing the violin he's a young teenager he's yeah. 14 15 16 years old and of course um it's Still, then, a very significant part of his life once he starts at Southwestern, which he starts at an early age, uh, 16. I mean, uh, you mentioned him being a sort of uh, prodigy when it comes to the violin. He was also very, very smart. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, you know, he starts um, college early based on the fact that he goes through elementary school huh. uh, and through high school uh, kind of in record time uh so that he graduates from high school by age 16 and he's wow. in college yeah. wow and and um
1: and he's earning money this whole time with a band the blue melody boys i think was one of them
0: yeah so the blue melody boys were a group led by Fortas, and they played um concerts uh two to three times a week at a local park wow. and he was making um eight dollars a night which in the 1920s is pretty good money um And he's from a poor background. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I mentioned earlier that Wolf never really figures out the world of business. Uh, None of those um, sorts of uh, business um, opportunities that he tries on South Main work out all that well. And so all the records that we have are uh, really that the Fortas family was uh, financially strapped. Right, Right. And it was probably Abe with his talent as a violinist. Who uh, uh, partially was able to support the family during this time? Wow!
1: Yeah, so carrying the <laughs> carrying the load, and then um, so so through, throughout all this, we've got we got a really smart guy. We've got music. We've got um, connections, as you mentioned, uh, with one of his mentors, Mister Paris. Right, uh, and this led him to what was then called Southwestern, which is now Rhodes College, um, where he. Uh, really sort of blossomed
0: even more, right? Tell us about, maybe if, a little bit about his his Rhodes years, or his
1: Southwestern years.
0: Sure, absolutely, and I mean, as someone who's been teaching at Rhodes all these years, this was a part of the story that I was especially interested yeah. in, and so the article spends a good deal of time on this. But, um, Southwestern was a brand new institution in Memphis, It had just opened its doors mm-hmm. in 1925. Uh, Fortis starts there in 1926, so, this is just the second year that the institution has been opened in Memphis. Um, I mentioned um, Hardwood Paris uh, uh, earlier. He basically has endowed a scholarship for a local student to start at Southwestern um, at this point, and Fortis is the beneficiary of that mm-hmm. uh, scholarship. So, uh, once again, a uh, poor background. But now he's gotten a scholarship to start at this brand-new institution that's – or I should say brand-new in Memphis. It had been founded once again in uh, Clarksville in 1848. So the institution had been around uh, for a while, but it had never been very financially strong, which is part of the reason that it moved here. And so Fortis starts there once again as a 16-year-old in 1926 – and uh, just does everything while yeah. he 's in college
1: yeah it's it, it, the descriptions in the store in the in the, in the article it's it 's hard to believe that he did all of that in 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 three years or, or did he stay the full four four years he did stay four but uh, it's still it 's just jam packed with things that he was involved in
0: phenomenal, yeah, he came in thinking he wanted to study music, and of course he was always um, uh, you know playing even though he didn 't major in music he majored in English, also studied uh, political science, uh, did honors in those disciplines, um, was a debater and was quite good at it, uh, led an orchestra, was um, part of kind of this uh, philosophy uh, club uh, called at the time the knightist yeah. club, and they would argue over deep philosophical issues. So you Just know, for fun. Right. So <laughs> there's philosophy. There's uh, theology that he's interested in. There's politics. There's literature. There's history. So Music. Has, don't forget music. Absolutely. Yeah. Music. You know, All of those interests. And while he's at Southwestern, he's exposed then to the world of ideas. Yeah. And I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, for somebody who had been in a humble background, uh, none of whose family members had ever gone to college, The opportunity to go to Southwestern in uh, 1926 is transformative, and he's really opened up to a whole new world of books and of travel. I mean, because with the debate team, he ends up being able to go to St. Louis, for example, and he goes to Illinois, and then he ends up, uh, between his junior and his senior year, studying, uh, taking summer courses at uh, University of uh, Wisconsin uh, for a summer. So it's while he's in college that he's exposed, really, to the world. He starts to travel. He starts to read. He starts to think about all sorts of things that just had not been uh, possible.
1: And I want to get you to talk a little bit about something you reference uh, in in the article, and that is that when his formal education began, uh, even as a young child, that's when um, you know, in, in, in that day, it was completely segregated. And, in, and indeed, Rhodes didn't accept black students at the time he was there. Right. But growing up uh, where he grew up geographically in Memphis, just south right. of Beale Street, um, you make the point that he would have been around uh, black people quite frequently as, as Beale Street was sort of the hub uh, of black America, I think maybe even the phrase you use. And, and so his life to the point where he entered formal education was very much a, a multi cultural and multi-ethnic experience, right?
0: Right, and I mean, this is the paradox of growing up in the South in the early 20th century. It was segregated and it was not segregated. Some aspects of his life are not segregated at all, and he makes reference to the fact that he's, that when he was growing up, he was playing with African-American boys who Mm -hmm. lived on the next block. (laughs) At the same time, the schools are strictly segregated. So... And when he goes to Southwestern, there are no African-American students there. It's not until 1964 that the college has uh, its first black students. Um, Yet Fortas seems to be a little bit different from some of his fellow students in that he's pushing some of the boundaries. He's he's an advocate of a socialist candidate for president while he's at Southwestern. Really? He invites... What he says later is the first African-American speaker to come to campus, and that was a local African-American pastor. Um, He notes that he shakes hands, uh, actually, with this uh, speaker and that this is the first time he'd ever shook the hand of a black person before. So, you know, in that sense, something is happening to him Mm -hmm. while he's at Southwestern that's shaping his ideas about race and certainly, we see uh, uh, how that uh, evolution is going to uh, play out in subsequent years.
1: Yeah, and I and I want to I don't want to skip over this because I think it's very important. But I want to get to his his professional career and you know the kind of the reason that Just City and the the Public Defender's Office here are interested in Abe Fortas. But uh, he did do really well at Southwestern. He became friends uh, not only uh, just with you know, in all these clubs and things he was involved in. but he Came friends with the president, who at the right. time was President Deal, right? And, yes. And then Yale and Harvard law schools sort of got in what sounds like almost a bidding war, um, based <laughs> on some of his mentors' you know letters of recommendation. He chose Yale, and he remained in touch with President Deal. And a lot of what you you write about is, is their relationship and the right. exchange of ideas and, and, and letters and, and, and sometimes admonition right. that they had. So talk just maybe a little bit about that and get him through law school, and then sure. we'll we'll talk about Washington.
0: Sure. So a a big part of the story really is the story of these Memphis mentors. Mm-hmm. And that's Hardwick Paris, whom we've already mentioned, but also Charles Deal. And understand, you know, Southwestern is a small college. It's about 400 students. So it's possible for the president to get to know sure. students in a way that it's not really possible now. And so Deal did really get to know him. Uh, recommended him, thought very highly of him, uh, writes two very strong recommendation letters, which I've seen, to oh, cool. Yale and Harvard. Yeah. Um, Paris, who's, who has family ties to Yale because his brother had gone to Yale Law School, is very interested in Fortas um, going off to Yale. He writes a series of letters to Yale, and I have those letters also, um, urging them to offer Fortas a scholarship, which they end up doing. Yeah. And so Fortas, um, by his merits, his hard work, he was always busy while he was in college, all those things he was doing, works very hard, has an outstanding academic record. So from his own merits, but also from the mentorship sure. of Paris yeah. and Deal, is able then to get a scholarship and um, goes off to Yale Law School. I don't think at that point he'd ever been on the East Coast before. And, you know, uh, one of the ironies is if you think about Fortas's life and what he ends up doing and where he ends up spending all of his time, when we think about Fortas now, we typically think of Yale Law School or we think of Washington, D.C., where he spends Mm -hmm. most of the rest of his life. And we see him as kind of a Washington player or power broker. Um, And yet uh, he doesn't. Even uh, leave Memphis really for any significant period of time until he finishes up at Southwestern. Right, right 20 year old. Right.
1: One of the nuggets that you include in that part of the story, and this terrified me as a former law student myself, that these law schools at the time would, would, would um, select a large number of students. I don't know remember if you say the number, but uh, through attrition and strict grading and just toughness, those classes would be reduced by two-thirds by the end of the third year. And so that's the kind of academic environment that he went into, having, as you mentioned, never really left the middle of the country and not much outside of Memphis – uh, with, a, with an education from a 400-student school that's struggling to get its footing in Tennessee's largest city, and he has to compete uh, against a class of law students from who knows where and make it into the top third in order to stay there, right?
0: Yeah, and that's what he did. I mean, I think you're right. You know, that would have been a, a real challenge, but Fortas was up to it, yeah, and, obviously, you obviously. know, uh, he made his way at Yale. We have some early letters that he exchanges with President Deal uh, in the middle of his first year of law school because uh, Fortas' father dies of lung cancer in the middle of his first year, and um, he's exchanging letters with President Deal about that. Uh, we know from those letters that it's a struggle, that law school is tough, but uh, we also know that he's very successful mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. Uh, in the end.
1: And and another theme through the through the article is sort of Memphis's cheerleading behind all of this. All th- all through the article, you talk about you know the newspapers, and when he comes home after you know after he, he makes his way in Washington, he's celebrated. But even before that, uh, uh, I think maybe even when he went to Yale, there was you know there was mention of him in the newspaper, and I um, I think it's it's kind of fascinating that the paper did track his trajectory and, you know, sort of stuck behind this poor Jewish kid who had who had risen out of Memphis. And, you know, Memphis had a lot going for it at the time. You know, culturally, it, it still does. I mean, it's it's kind of known for certain things. But there they were, like always kind of keeping tabs on a lay fortus, Right.
0: Absolutely. And I found that actually one of the more interesting parts mm-hmm. of the process of trying to do all this work is the newspaper record is actually really good. Mm-hmm. It's better than you would think. And for that early part of his life, really, from the time he graduates from Southwestern and goes off to law school, uh, the local papers are pretty good about yeah. uh, covering what he 's doing, so he publishes an article in the Yale Law Review, and that 's written up in the newspaper <laughs> you know and he 's studying some very technical aspect of of um, uh, wage regulation in uh, <laughs> chicago and yet there 's this you know, Memphis newspaper article uh, right. you know uh, focused on the fact that um, you know, he's from Memphis and he's yeah. doing well. And so, yeah, I think you're right. There's this sense that he's a hometown boy who's done well. He's gone off to Yale and, once again, he's very, very successful. And they really follow uh, Fortas and tell his story. And this is both of the major newspapers of Memphis. So uh, you can track this in the Memphis Press seminar and in the Commercial Appeal.
1: Yeah, and and so... Again, not to skip over too much this guy 's life is so rich, and this article is so rich that um, I, hate to, I hate to blow through things, but I mean he became uh, you know a, a kind of a, an expert in how to govern and how to find the best policy and implement that policy and he did so throughout the, the New Deal era uh, of, of governing and I think he started in the Department of Agriculture, but he was sort of seemingly for the next i don 't know thirty years, always in the middle of what was happening with democracy and what was happening with the, you know, the emergence of post-war uh, America, post-war United States.
0: And, and Abe Fortas was right in the middle of all of that, right? That's yeah, what. absolutely. I mean, he goes to Washington and very quickly really figures out the ways of Washington. Um, and he gets this reputation as somebody who knows how to get things done, holds a number of offices, serves on a number of boards and panels. He's formulating policy on everything from uh, petroleum to Puerto Rico. He's got his hands in all sorts of things. He's working for the Interior Department, for the Agricultural Department. You know, he he just is able to rise rapidly and uh, gets to know a lot of people. And, of course, uh, most uh, significant for the story is that Um, he's going to form a friendship with uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1948.
1: And I love this quote. I think it's from his law partner um, about his sort of theory of governing. The quote is, Fortis offered a vision of an activist government at home and abroad, one that would combat the threats of famine and fascism overseas while tackling inequality and injustice in the United States. Um, That's quite a... (laughs) Quite a thing to say about somebody's um, role in in governing and role in in making policy, um, and I, and I wonder if you could maybe make a comment about his his commitment to public servanthood and in this sort of uh, attention to both ends of the of the spectrum uh, in a country like the United States. I mean, I think that's what's represented in that quote.
0: Sure, absolutely, and I think that that that, that part of the article deals with the speech that he makes at southwestern in 1946. So he frequently. Um, comes back to Southwestern and speaks. And the first time that he does this is in 1946. And it's obvious by that time. He's now been in Washington, really, for about a decade and a half. He's established himself there. And he does have a theory of governing. And he does have a sense of uh, governing philosophy mm-hmm. and public policy. And we can see that sense of justice in that as early as 1946, he's publicly... Making statements in opposition to racial segregation.
1: Wow! So they say that year again. Nineteen
0: forty-six. Yeah. Wow.
1: Wow. And uh, and so. Um, he 's bold and and he does look out for the little guy, seemingly he goes on to to become a lawyer and, and I think argues many cases probably in front of the supreme court and and The thing that we know him most for uh, in in the public defender world and in the world of Just City is his role in the case Gideon versus Wainwright and um, you know a lot of people listening to this will know what that is, but just really quickly the man's name was Clarence Gideon, and he was charged in Florida with a petty crime theft. Uh, and back then, uh, he, there was no right to an attorney, uh, and, and Gideon was facing a significant period of jail time. He had a record, and uh, he asked for an attorney several times over and, and was not given one, appealed that case, hand-wrote a brief. that landed at the Supreme Court, uh, and the justices asked Abe Fortas. I didn't know that until I read the article. Right. But the justices asked Abe Fortas to take this guy's case. And then I think this is his law partner again who, who talks about um, Fortas's role, and he says, Fortas's oral argument was as thorough, as dramatic, as suave, and, most important to the justices, as well-prepared as anything that could have been done for the best-paying corporate client. And he was doing that for a poor drifter from Florida whom he probably never met until the Supreme Court called one day. Um, what do you think that says about, you know, I mean, is that sort of the best story of, of, of who Abe Fortas was? And, and
0: Yes, I mean, you know, Fortis... Um By this time, so, so he you know, uh, as we said, he's in public service, he's serving in government really from the time he finishes up at Yale Law School until about 1946, 1947. Um, At this point, he's gone into private practice and he's done very well. But that sense of justice and that sort of governing philosophy that we were focusing on earlier is still with him. And so... Uh, he's asked by the Supreme Court to argue this case. The court knew that the case was a significant one. And in some ways, some scholars have argued that perhaps the court was looking to overturn the previous precedent, uh, Betts versus Brady. And by overturning that, uh, the court would be um, upholding the right to counsel in all felony cases under the Sixth Amendment. Uh, and they wanted somebody to argue that case who could really argue it well. And he did. (laughs) And Fortas was a top lawyer at the time. He's a Washington lawyer who's done very well, but who also has that sense of justice. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're a scholar of the South. You, you told us, you know, that's right. where you spend the majority of your of your right. scholarship and research. And I just think it's fascinating, a guy like this, you know, a, a, a privileged white man, you know, he, he had a, yes. a Jewish heritage, but essentially a privileged white man who came through with nurturing by other privileged white men and landed in the center of power for the world, really, and landed next to Lyndon Johnson, as you says, and became a Supreme Court justice because of that. Um, and then these two guys really do have this, you know, commitment to civil rights. And I wonder yeah. if you can comment on sort of that duality of, of white men coming from the South and this part of our country's history and doing, leading on these issues.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, Johnson, obviously, is a fascinating uh, figure. And many, many books have been written about Johnson's uh, liberal values. And, you know, he was a Texan. Um, what Johnson and Fortas have in common is their humble backgrounds Mm-hmm. And Johnson really sees Fortas as kind of a fellow Southern liberal who, even though they're different in their temperament and their personalities, Fortas was soft-spoken. He liked um, classical music. Um, you know, Johnson is from small town, Texas, and is loud and boisterous and tells jokes and he's crude and all of those things. But what they have in common is that they had these humble origins uh, in the South. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, once again, uh, we often think of Fortas as this Washington power broker, but he had a southern accent. And, I mean, you can look up, uh, you know, the oral argument and uh, you can listen to him making the oral argument in Gideon. And you can hear that he's Mm. from Memphis. Yeah. I mean, he was a southerner. And that's a big part of what right. he shared with President Johnson.
1: And that's, in fact, you know, sort of the theory, if there is one, of your, uh, the premise of, of this article is that where he grew up, Memphis, Tennessee, Absolutely. in the early 20th century. Um, and you do a great job, I think, of telling, you know, telling that story throughout and then sum- summarizing it up at the end. So, But do that for us now. Sort of give us the, the closing argument for, for how, why Memphis made Abe Fortas who he was.
0: Right. So the argument at the end of the essay is really that um, growing up poor and Jewish in segregated Memphis in the early 20th century really shapes Fortas's understanding of justice. It shapes his philosophy of law, and it makes him into an individual who is aware of the poverty of others and uh, therefore his work in the right to counsel case, the Gideon case, very significant. It also makes him um, focus on the rights of uh, religious minorities. The Epperson versus Arkansas case mm-hmm. from 1968 is a case where Fortas writes uh, the opinion of the court in striking down an Arkansas uh, anti-evolution law. And so we see there that his Jewish background as somebody who was growing up in Tennessee at the time of the Scopes trial in the 1920s shapes his thinking. And then finally, race and civil rights. Um, As someone who experienced the uh, racism and the violence, for example, of the Klan, um, he was seven years old at the time of the lynching of L Persons in Memphis. And he lived just a few blocks away from Beale Street where the uh, severed uh I mean, body parts of L persons after that lynching were you know dropped in the middle of this sort of uh, um group of people on Beale Street. I mean that was just a few blocks right. away from Fortas's home. So Fortas has those memories of growing up in the segregated, violent mm-hmm. South. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 shapes him um also.
1: Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And then I don't want to skip over this because I think it was, it's important. And I, uh, but that he did resign from the Supreme Court. Um, and, and I, uh, I want to hear you know about a little bit about that the the scandal that brought him down. Whether that scandal would have had any merit today, I think, is a curious question. And, and see what you have to say about that.
0: Sure, it's an interesting question. And you know, and uh, nothing in my article is trying to say that it was insignificant or that it it didn't matter Mm -hmm. that he was the only justice to ever have to step down uh, from the court. I'm just trying to tell a different story because that's a story that uh, we know well. And the biographies that have been written spend a fair amount of time on that. And and quickly,
1: he took some money for a speech, right, or a series of speeches. Uh,
0: Right. So there were a couple of things. One is, you know, as I said, he did very well while he was uh, lawyering in Washington. And so to take a position on the Supreme Court actually was a big financial hit Hmm. uh, for someone who had done so well. And uh, so some of his uh, friends kind of uh, were able to organize Uh, him being able to teach a seminar at uh, American University, and they kind of raised the money to pay him uh, for that. Uh, So that was one episode. And the second was that he took uh, a sort of contribution from the head of a charitable foundation. He was serving as part of that foundation's board. Um, And it uh, just so happened that the person who was the head of the foundation was under federal indictment for stock fraud. This was uh, uh, Louis Wolfson. And so his association with uh, Wolfson and also uh, taking money to teach at uh, American University, uh, both of these things, added to the fact that, look, it's... It's it's 1968, yeah. and this is a difficult year for Johnson and for the country. Right. Johnson has said he's no longer seeking a second term as president. Uh, he made that announcement in early 1968. Wow. Uh, But he still is trying to nominate Fortas for the chief justiceship Mm -hmm. in the fall Mm -hmm. of 1968. So it's a political year and uh, not just any political year. In the middle of Vietnam as well. And extraordinary. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, Fortas was so closely tied to President Johnson. Right, right. Uh, and had been tied to Johnson for the past uh, 20 years. And I think probably more than anything, it was his uh, political ties to Johnson yeah. that hurt him uh, yeah. in 1968 and early 1969.
1: Yeah. Well, a, f- a f- truly fascinating story, and um, I could talk about it all day. I don't know if people could listen to it for <laughs> as, all, as long as I could talk about it, but I am really, really uh, thrilled that you came to talk to us about this. I will listen to it. I promise you that, and, uh, and I hope everyone will read it, um, and I, I can't wait to see what, uh, what you uncover about Memphis history next. So thanks, Professor Hubner.
0: Thank you very much, Josh.
1: That was Rhodes College Professor of History Tim Hubner. Our thanks to Professor Hubner for making the trek down North Parkway to join us in the studio here at Crosstown Concourse. Do yourself a favor and read that article that we just discussed, Memphis and the Making of Abe Fortas, which is linked with permission at the Shelby County Public Defender's website at defendshelbyco.org. We also have a link in the description of this episode. While you're on their website, learn more about the good work being done at the third oldest public defender's office in the country. Our local PD office was created nearly 50 years before Fiddlin' Abe Fortas argued Gideon versus Wainwright. As always, thanks to Gil and Carla Wirth at the OAM Network for their support of the Permanent Record and the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other fine shows at the theoamnetwork.com. Thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for the Permanent Record. He's working on a new album featuring this and some more original songs. Watch for it soon. I'm Josh Spickler, and this is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at JustCity.org, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record somewhere. Give us a rating wherever you do. It helps us build our audience in a just city. We listen, and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.